And so I think that's one of the most inhumane aspects of current society is the uh, incarceration rate. And I think that's one of the best arguments for moving away from a coercive government monopoly system. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome, welcome, Liberty friends, Liberty foes, even the Liberty curious. I'm glad to have you here at the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I strive to advance the ideas of liberty. This is episode number 191, and you can find the show notes for today's show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 191. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible, free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Today's guest is the Davis Professor of Economic Organization and Innovation at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. He has made numerous TV appearances on over 100 broadcast stations, including CNBC, CNN, Fox, NPR, and many others. His articles have appeared in a wide range of publications as well. He has done a great amount of research in the area of private governance as laid out in his book, Private Governance, Creating Order in Economic and Social Life. I'm pleased to welcome in Edward Stringham. Ed, are you ready to roar? (laughs) I'll do my best Tony the Tiger roar right now. Yeah. All right. And, you know, I want to spend the bulk of our time today discussing your work on the concept of private governance. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, I really want to know a little bit more about you. So how did you really get into all this stuff? Why did you first take interest in the ideas of liberty, economics, free markets, and all that great stuff? I was always interested in business growing up. I had, uh, for some strange reason, this uh, pro-business mindset, even when I was very young. But I really hadn't studied it in any very systematic way. So when I would hear some ideas on the television news in high school, I would often be confused. And luckily, I had the great fortune of studying economics in college under some amazing professors. And one of my favorite professors, his name is Walter Block. And he got me so excited about studying economics in a very systematic way. And he really sparked my passion. And I remember him telling me once, uh, he gave me a bunch of books to read over the summer. And I wasn't really much for reading 16 books over the summer. But he told me, he said, you know, I'm really envious of you because you're going to get to read all of these books for the first time. And I read them and it was amazing. And I'm very grateful to be exposed to all this great literature and ideas out there. And Walter Block, of course, he was uh, one of the very first guests on this very program. So is there one book in that list, I guess, that, that stood out the most to you that you would say really, I guess, maybe opened your eyes the most or just kind of shocked you uh, out of your old paradigm of thinking? I mean, I was relatively uh, close to some of his ideas to begin with, but studying it from a very systematic way, I really enjoyed As an intro book in one of his classes, we read Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. I just loved that. And then from there, he started giving me other books, and I read a ton in between. But some of the more memorable ones were things like For a New Liberty by Murray Rothbard. I also love, absolutely love Walter Block's book, Defending the Undefendable, which is just great and hilarious in so many ways. 
It is a fun one. And of course, all of that eventually led to your own work on the subject of private governance. And this is always a tough subject to tackle for me because, you know, and we'll start, I guess, with one of the distinctions. And this is why it is difficult to tackle, because most people think of government as sort of a benign institution. They think of it as, you know, just a method to get things that are good for people, whether that's defense, whether that's protection from foreign enemies. For some people, that includes maybe purchasing healthcare for everybody or taking care of society in a, just any sort of general way. So when you sort of come out and tell people, well, I'm against government, a lot of people, even just by that that word, will kind of have a synapse and, and not be really open to what you're saying. So th- the distinction that you make in your book is government versus governance. So can you just make that distinction? You know, what, what is the difference between the two? So I think rules and regulations and things that create order in society are great. They're necessary. They can produce a lot of benefits, and they can help keep the peace. So from that perspective, we want to support rules whenever people want them or think they're necessary, we should have them. But just because we think that something is a good, it doesn't need necessarily to be provided by a monopolist. It doesn't necessarily need to be provided by a coercive monopoly named government. So what I like to do is point out that there's tons of rules and regulations all over in the world today, in modern times and in history, that are created privately and they're enforced privately. They're done from a more voluntary perspective and oftentimes done so in small groups such as clubs. So the main difference between a club and a government is you can opt in and opt out of the club without having to move or without having to leave your nation. You can have many different clubs in your life. You might join a chess club to create small rules about your uh, chess game, but you can join the New York Stock Exchange as another type of club. You can join Visa or MasterCard networks. Those are other types of clubs. And within each club, you interact with other people who've agreed to follow the same rules to create order within that network. So the major difference for you then between a government and something more akin to a club would be really the coercion involved. Would that be safe to say whether you have a choice of whether to be involved with that organization or not? That's exactly right. So you can see lots of things in your life where you opt into a business relationship That organization, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, needs to make sure that you're happy with the arrangement. They need to make sure that you as a customer or the co-producer of whatever club goods you're involved with, that you are enjoying this relationship, that you're happy. If not, you can opt out. With a coercive relationship, with a monopoly situation, there can be lots and lots of harmful rules and regulations done in a very negative way. And people don't really have the option of saying, well, you know what? I don't think that this is a good set of rules and regulations. Uh, Modern corporations in the United States can't say, well, you know, I think the Sarbanes-Oxley Act or I think the Dodd-Frank Act is too onerous for me. I don't think that our investors really are going to get anything out of it. And we're going to opt out of it. Those are imposed regardless. They can't just say, oh, we're good on that. We're not going to, that thousand page of regulations. We appreciate you guys writing it up, but uh, no thanks. That's right. It's the coercive element, which allows a lot of bad things to get put into the system, which you don't see with a private voluntary system. 
And you mentioned the definition of government as in your book, I believe, as the group of people who control and make decisions for a country or state, et cetera. And that's that's kind of the Merriam-Webster definition of it. But I, I always think of ways that people can govern privately. And let's just say if there's 20 property owners who happen to have adjoining property, they all get together. They say, you know what? Well, you know, we don't want to hire private defense companies and do all this stuff that these anarcho-capitalists are talking about all the time. We just want to run it ourselves. So the 20 of us want to get together and create our own police force and, you know, create our own form of law, our own method for, uh, you know, asserting the law within our own territory, you know, not extending outwards of it, not forcing people to beholden to it. Would you refer to that as government or would you just still put that in the sector of a private club, even though maybe they are sort of forming a monopoly in the sense that they've decided they're going to control their own system? It's not, quote unquote, open to competition, maybe in in a way that many anarcho-capitalists might advocate for. I would be okay with people opting into a system on their property and deciding to have certain sets of rules or regulations on their property. As long as they're not committing force against other third parties, that's quite all right. You can have people opt into a uh, communal arrangement. You could have people opt into a very strict arrangement, a very lackadaisical arrangement. And so when you see people opting into colleges, for example, some of them will even have rules about how long the hair can be on the men or what type of clothing you can wear or whether you can consume alcohol. And I'm totally okay with that. This is a very pluralistic view of private governance allows people to opt into systems that they prefer as long as they're not coercing people into their system. I think that's quite all right. Now, in your book, you describe how most people nowadays, or maybe for all of history, are essentially legal centrists in that they believe that there needs to be a central organizing force when it comes to their view of law and government in order for markets and for society overall to function. And you make the claim that this is a, a flawed concept from the get-go. So, you know, what are some of the assumptions that legal centrists make that just don't hold up? So I have kind of a contradictory worldview oftentimes where in general, most people are in favor of free markets, but they have a lot of assumptions about what is required to make a market work. And it's one of the main ones which has been grilled into most people based on Thomas Hobbes and a lot of other theorists along those lines is that without this third party, this course of third party, the Leviathan, enforcing the rules and putting people in line, then chaos is going to occur. And so legal centralism basically attributes order to the state. They assume that if there's not this course of third party looking over your shoulder at all times, then predation or other types of violence are going to emerge. And they assume that this third party is actually going to be there working on the behalf of you, your counterparties, and the public to make sure that order emerges. But what I like to point out is government, whether we like it or not, doesn't necessarily always have our interests in mind. Oftentimes, people within government will consider their own self-interest when making decisions. That could be relatively benign choices like consuming leisure, maybe not showing up right away if you call them, or it can be a little bit more venal and dangerous. And we see that oftentimes with police violence or police uh, forfeiture, asset forfeiture practices, where they're actually using the law to make profits or they're using the law to exert power over the people rather than to serve 
and protect. So that's the main thing that I would say we should question is that just because we have a need, we can't just snap our fingers and then hope that government officials are going to be there and help and solve all problems in a very low cost way. Then would you say that the reason that they're not necessarily accountable kind of goes back to that original distinction there. It comes from the lack of consent of the individuals. Now, many people make consent in their minds to the idea of the U.S. government. They want to live under it, but they're certainly not consenting to individual laws passed. Like you said before, corporations certainly aren't consenting to Sarbanes-Oxley. Most people certainly aren't consenting to the war on drugs and that sort of thing. But you're saying we wouldn't get that sort of thing if we actually looked at government more as a club, more as how you view a club as a voluntary organization that creates its own rules, but they literally create them for the benefit of the people because the people are actually the people deciding on those rules. Exactly. So the problem with this one size fits all solution advocated by legal centralists is every single person in a region, and and in our case, we've got 300 million people in our region have to follow the exact same sets of rules. For example, the drug war rules. Now, they've been relaxing that a little bit in certain areas, and I think that's a good trend. But we've got to follow these federal guidelines, whether we like it or not. And with a one-size-fits-all solution, sometimes it happens to fit you. Sometimes on certain margins, it might be okay. It might not be so bad. But it's really the people who might have uh, out-of-the-ordinary preferences. The drug consumers, for example, have the the outside-of-the-ordinary preferences, and then they get put in jail because their desired society is not there. They're basically being incarcerated because government's one-size-fits-all rules do not allow for the drug consumer to consume what he or she wants to consume in her own home. Sure. And just staying on the war on drugs topic, I mean, and we go back to my idea of these 20 adjoining private property owners. If those 20 adjoining property owners all together say, hey, you know what we don't want? We don't want cocaine on our property. We don't want heroin on our property. We don't want people coming on our property and selling those items either. In fact, we don't want prostitution either. We don't want any of that stuff here. You would still say that's perfectly fine because they're doing it in sort of that club manner where it is their property. It is their rules. They don't have to go killing people who are on drugs. They can just not, you know, not allow them on their property to engage in that activity. Exactly. So it's not a... uh lack of rural society where anything goes, people can just do all types of terrible things or even offensive things. People can have whatever rules of their property that they want. So we can think about the nightclub having rules about whatever, anything. You can't speak too loud or how are you going to get past the doorman? You can have very strict rules in a religious convent. You can have strict rules in a golf course about how you're allowed to walk and what part of the greens you can't walk on. You can have other clubs where they're very lackadaisical. So things like Burning Man, which is a festival for people who dress oddly. That is a privately governed society where the rules are basically you can do anything with some exceptions. But as long as people are voluntarily opting into the system, a system of private governance allows people to seek out rule structures that they like in the exact same way that markets allow people to seek out products that they like. So one person might like a particular 
uh, type of car. Another person likes a different car. One person might like one type of housing complex. Another one might like a different one. And private governance is exactly the same. You are allowed to opt into or out of any type of system that benefits you. Another concept you bring up in the book, Ed, is this concept of the deus ex machina in the social sciences. So, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the term, but what does it actually mean in the terms of the social sciences and in terms of how people view it in relation to government? So the deus ex machina device, which oftentimes will refer to fiction novels where the characters get in a lot of trouble and all of a sudden, uh, when all hope is lost, this god comes out, it was came in from these Greek plays where God would get wheeled in on a crane. So it was God of the machines. And in the very end of the movie, you're going to have all the characters' problems solved and everybody lives happily ever after. And a lot of people actually make that assumption in social science as well when it comes to law enforcement. So if you have a contract that doesn't go well, just call the courts. If you have something going wrong in your neighborhood, just call the cops. And the assumption is that government can solve your problems in a low-cost way. But what I point out in my book is that government not only may have different interests, they might not have the knowledge to solve a problem or they might not have the ability to solve a problem in a low-cost way. And I want to give an example which is obviously a big one, but the Bernie Madoff fraud case from a few years ago, which was a multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme where they had been investigated by the SEC multiple times at the request of some private individuals who looked into it and said, you know, this is not possible to have 1% returns every single month with no down month. That's just not possible. So the uh, SEC looked into it and they just didn't find it. They didn't understand what was going on. And so those people, unfortunately, the victims of Madoff, did not have the ability to call in the government and say, oh, I just got defrauded. Can you get my money back? And I think that's actually pretty common. If you call the police for many crimes or certain things, the police have to prioritize their time And in certain cases, they'll send somebody many minutes away. Some things they just classify as a a non-important event and they will not send anybody at all. And so the idea that government is there to solve other problems is kind of like an assumption, I would say, rather than an actual fact. How would private governance in the way you view it, how would that handle something akin to a Bernie Madoff in your view? So the neat thing about economics and I would say the history that I've looked into is I've found tons of actual examples that I don't have to really speculate and say, well, theoretically, how might this be solved when I can actually look in history and document plenty of examples of how it works. And that's really the approach of private governance is to look at actual examples. And one cool example to prevent a Bernie Madoff style Ponzi scheme is third-party fund accounting and administration services. So in Madoff's case, and this has existed for a while, and it's actually become a lot more popular after the Madoff scandal, but in Madoff's case, he had control over your assets, and he was the one who could make the trades, and then he basically reported to you what 
was in your account, even though he wouldn't provide any uh, real-time access of what you owned or anything like that. So you had to basically take Madoff's word for it. And as we know, in this case, it was uh, fictitious, fictitious returns. He was just giving you bogus information and paying out certain investors' money with other investors' money. So that is the worst thing that we can think of. Now, uh, separately, there are other funds that would demand third-party administration and accounting services. So you hire a third party to say, we're going to actually look at the books. We're going to look at the books every single day. We're going to give you a report every single day. And so the investor has the ability to say, oh, this matches up exactly with what the fund says it's doing. You can actually have third-party custodian services. So a hedge fund manager, for example, is making trades, making investment decisions, but actually not the person who is in control of those funds. So maybe JP Morgan or another third party is the one in control of the funds. And so in this case, the hedge fund you know, leader is actually just an advisor for this other group, JP Morgan, who is holding your funds for you. So this is not a theoretical, abstract science fiction solution to a Bernie Madoff problem, but it is a privately generated system which has emerged that was popular before Madoff, but now it's especially popular because when you know that a lot of money, your money is at stake, it makes sense to pay a small fee to a third party to prevent fraud from occurring. And that would be, whereas an organization, a coercive organization such as the SEC, people may have relied on them so much in the past, maybe less now that they see a case like Madoff. But the fact is the SEC isn't really accountable, whereas another third party, if they allow the type of Madoff fraud to go through, well, that third party is not going to stay in business. Who's going to pay them anything to watch over their business when, you know, obviously if they let somebody like Madoff, somebody who's committing massive fraud through the system, I mean, how could they ever stay in business? That's exactly right. So I focus a lot on financial markets in my book and groups like the London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange were formed to provide information and assurances to investors. So for example, the London Stock Exchange used to be basically traders meeting in coffee houses and conducting trades. And over time, people realize, you know, there's some potential pitfalls of this. Government actually didn't enforce contracts in these markets. They thought that the stock market was a form of gambling. So people said, all right, if we want to make these trades, we want to make these investments, we've got to come up with a system that can make this work. So over time, the London stockbrokers transformed Jonathan's Coffee House into a private club that would create and enforce rules. So for example, they would put a defaulter's name on a chalkboard. Over time, they started having stricter admission requirements and making it a closed club that you could only join if you had references and other types of met other requirements. And that enabled them to adopt as their motto, my word is my bond. In New York, the same thing. You could do business on the curb. You could trade anywhere you wanted. But if you dealt with stocks that were listed in the New York Stock Exchange, those stocks had to follow stricter listing requirements. And so you had basically private assurances from private self-regulatory groups, and you were free to join a club that was less strict than those clubs and willingly assume those risks. 
But the fact is we know that the London Stock Exchange and New York Stock Exchange did tremendously well by regulating their markets and making markets work. Now, Ed, uh, a lot of people listening to this show will probably, you know, already be very, you know, open to these ideas of private governance. Uh, some people might be kind of on the fence, while others might think it sounds completely crazy. But you know, you say that the amount of private governance right now in our society today is actually far greater than than people even realize all around them. So, what are a few examples in our current society of private governance that we might take for granted, other than you know the financial stuff we discussed earlier? So when you are a business and you're making a very high value transaction or you're making lots of transactions in a day, the idea of getting caught up in a trial, having your money get caught up in courts that can take months or even years, especially in other countries, legal trials can take uh, well over 10 years. You cannot conduct business in that way. And so when you have a very large transaction, a lot of stuff at stake, things are timely, people are going to come up with private systems to make sure that contracts work. So you have a lot of ways of structuring deals with surety bonds or having third parties review things along the way. People have things like mediation if you encounter trouble. And so you have a whole system to prevent problems from occurring with very large transactions. On the other side of the spectrum, think about all of the small transactions that you make in any given day. If you buy something on eBay and you lose $5, theoretically you can sue your counterparty. But just think about the cost of a legal trial, the cost of initiating a lawsuit, the cost of establishing jurisdiction, finding out who that person is, getting your money back, The idea that people could make a lawsuit over a $5 transaction is also not very reliable. People need to figure out ways to avoid having money tied up in government courts. So with the very large transactions, you'll have business groups such as the International Swaps and Derivatives Association or any other number of industry groups that step in to say, we are here to help uh, facilitate this process. With smaller transactions like those on eBay, you have groups like eBay or PayPal or your credit card who act as an intermediary. And so we don't even know it, but our credit cards and PayPal and all these other groups have a system to make sure that transactions go smoothly. They have a system that can help detect fraudulent transactions. And at the end of the day, uh, most of these problems are solved before they occur. In the few cases when a problem does occur, you don't call the cops, you don't call the courts, you call eBay, you call your credit card company, you call PayPal, and these groups act as the equivalent of this third-party arbitrator that we might assume that the government is doing, but instead it's done privately and for profit. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper into just how you believe that for-profit companies can address certain issues such as justice in a moment. But first, I need to take a minute to tell our listeners about our sponsor, a not-for-profit company, a great organization called Health Excellence Select. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I purchased my own health insurance. So personally, I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. 
my deductible more than doubled, my premium shot through the roof, and I'm just sitting here thinking, what am I actually getting for this? I'm a healthy guy. I don't go to the doctor. I really hadn't even been to a doctor for any major medical problem in years and years and years. So why would I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month and then have to spend six or $8,000 in deductibles before I even see a dime of coverage for my healthcare? It just didn't add up. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for most of us. But luckily, there is an alternative out there now. It's an alternative known as health sharing. And health sharing is simply awesome. <laughs> I've gotten paid for every single medical bill I've submitted in full, 100%. This is not a joke. After I spend $500, I get everything else back. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch. They'll do all the work for you. They will find your doctors. They will set appointments for you. They'll provide you 24-7 access to doctors via Skype. So you don't even need to go to a doctor or pay a dime half the time. Health Excellence Select is truly revolutionary and you guys are doing yourselves a disservice if you do not look into this amazing alternative to your standard corporatized Obamacare health insurance. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or if you're ready to sign up, you can directly call my representative Jeff Cantor at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Now, Ed, a lot of people might be listening to this and might be starting to think, okay, I'm kind of on board with this. I can start to see how private governance and, and s different systems that are private, that are more akin to the club system than what we might have known as government, uh, can work and can you know do a lot of the things that we presume that government had to do before. But you know, what about you know protecting individual rights? Because I think that's where people might really hit a wall a lot of the times. Because how can private governance deal with people who aren't interested in being in these clubs, who really don't care about whatever rules society might set up? How would private governance deal with people like rapists, like murders, people that are just, you know, a little off kilter and don't really care whatever rules the rest of society props up? So one thing I hope everybody can agree on is things like contract enforcement. It is extremely easy and extremely common for people to select a forum ahead of the contract to agree, hey, if something happens, we are going to go to the American Arbitration Association or we're going to go to Visa or MasterCard or American Express and they're going to help us with our problems. So if everybody can agree on that, that contract enforcement is not the necessity that most people assume, then I'll be completely happy. Now, the next set of questions, which are more difficult questions that you touch upon a minute ago, are things like protecting person and property. And here too, we can actually assume that all order in the world exists because of government, because of government police, or we can look around and say, actually, there's lots and lots of private security guards, or there's a lot of research by Jane Jacobs and her followers that point out that other simple things like eyes on the street make an area much safer. Or we could look at individual concerns for morality. You could see a lot of prison guards and the equivalent of police in, in a prison but frankly, it's not very safe. It's actually much more dangerous because the people there have a lot of uh, lack of concern oftentimes for respecting other people. So we can't just assume order exists in the world because of government police, because if that were the case, you know, just put more police everywhere and then problem solved. And we know that's not the case in prisoner guards. We know that's not the case in 
a lot of these uh, more dangerous uh, cities like Washington, D.C. So we have to look at what makes a society safe. And I could point to tons of examples of unarmed security guards. I can also point to examples of fully deputized private police that look very similar to government police, but they're hired privately. They're not hired by taxes and they have very different incentive structures. So for example, in the state of North Carolina or Massachusetts even, you can have fully deputized university police. So when you go to Duke University, you can see police. They can accept a 911 calls. They respond to a lot of calls, but they don't have the same incentives that government police have because they're hired basically by the students or with Duke University Medical, they're hired by the um, customers, the doctors, all of that stuff. So you've got a system that looks very similar to our current setup, but with very different incentives because the private policing system actually needs to care about the customer, uh, whereas government police have a whole other host of objectives that they're trying to meet. You know, I, I know... We hear a lot of conversation today in our current society about some of the problems with private prisons. This is something Bernie Sanders talks about a lot. And, you know, he'll just say that because these prisons are private, they have a really bad incentive, a perverse incentive, an incentive that, you know, the more prisoners they get, the more money they'll make. So how would a private governance system set up sort of systems of law and justice and perhaps prisons that don't have that perverse incentive? I mean, how would you, I guess rectify that for people that have that sort of concern where maybe they just picture just evil people setting up these jails and passing private laws where they just swoop people up and push them into their prison system so they can keep making money. Is that something that you think is not a real concern that you would have with private governance or is it really our current system that lends to that? Yeah, I think it is the current system. And I think that we should be worried about those issues that Sanders is talking about and others are talking about. But we really need to focus on Who's sending those people there? Who's financing those things? It's a system of governmentally mandated laws and then financed by taxpayers. So the term private prison is in many ways a misnomer. It's government-funded prisons, funded by taxpayers. It's government-filled prisons, filled by police and other government laws, which mandate that, for example, a nonviolent drug user gets put in those prisons. So yes, it is true that one part of the puzzle are, we can call them non-governmental, but they are working for the government. At the end of the day, they're getting their money from the government. So I think the term private prison there is, is a very misleading one. And I do agree that that system that we have right now is very terrible, very perverse. And I would say as my ideal, we would move way, way away from the system of overcriminalization, putting people in jail at the drop of a hat. In England, uh, a long time ago, a thousand years ago, the system was basically restitution-based. And we can think of that as if somebody commits a wrong, you have to pay the victim something back. And it was not nearly so much retribution-based, which means we're going to punish you. And so a system that's restitution-based doesn't require this incarceratory state. It doesn't require people being put in jail. 
in such large numbers. If we look at the incarceration rate in the United States being among the highest in the world, we're always tied around with Russia sometimes in first place. I think it's kind of crazy to think about uh, the land of the free having such a high incarceration rate, especially with so many of these people being nonviolent offenders. So to me, this is one of the best examples of why we should be moving away from a system of coercive government law enforcement. The idea that people, in, in many cases now, they're not even aware of what they're doing, whether it's a uh, crime or punishable, and then all of a sudden they get slapped with these huge uh, penalties and, and put in jail for years or decades of their lives. And so I think that's one of the most inhumane aspects of current society is the incarceration rate. And I think that's one of the best arguments for moving away from a, a coercive government monopoly system. So you would really attribute a lot of the problems that we're calling private prisons now to the fact that they're, they're really not private prisons. I mean, they might be owned by private companies, but these companies are certainly not operating in the way that a group of private governance would work or how a, a club system would work or anything like that. The, the better term might actually be fascist prisons because they're, <laughs> they're a private company that's really just sucking off the teat of the coercive government that's shuffling the prisoners in there. That's right. And not getting their money from voluntarily paying customers are being coerced into them. There was a uh, an example of Michael Moore's movie where he looks at a government judge who has a relationship with a uh, one of these prisons. And there was a bribing scheme where the government judge was sending basically innocent people to these very harsh prisons when they didn't deserve it and then taking bribes for that. And Michael Moore says, see, look, look at how bad markets are. Look at how bad the free market is. And I would say that's the exact opposite of the market. When you have government judges giving them so much authority to basically take away somebody's freedom, that's the total anathema of the free market. Ed, one more thing I want to touch on, and, and that's the, the concept of, you know, for a lot of liberty people, liberty is about more than what works best economically. That's certainly not why I got interested in the first place. To me and to many others, being for individual rights, being for liberty is really about justice. And when we see injustices around the world, or even maybe in our backyard, you know, we think of who do we turn to? How do we stop these things from happening? So, I mean, let's go back to just my group of private property owners for a minute. There's 20 private property owners. They've formed their own police force. You might call them a club. Other people might call them governments. But the point is they're not coercive in nature. They're just there to protect their own property. But now there's another group of 20 private property owners that live, you know, maybe a couple miles away. And these guys figure out, well, these guys are enslaving children over there. They're actually doing really terrible things. Well, they're not in our jurisdiction, so maybe we don't have any way that we can send our police force over there, but we really think this should be stopped. People's rights are being violated. What's the private governance solution to that? I mean, would that group of people, that private club, that private police force have a right, in your view, to to put a halt to this activity, even though it's you know, not technically in their jurisdiction? I am 100% against enslaving innocent children that you mentioned in this example. So we can think of a lot of terrible private crimes and then try and figure out how they might be solved. And these are all very, very important questions that need to be answered and need to be addressed. I do think that they might be addressed in many different ways and 
it's going to be hard for me to sit down and say, here's exactly the way, the ideal way this problem is going to be addressed. Here's the ideal way that that problem is going to be addressed. And just coming up with a whole litany of things. I would say the best type of answer I would have is to look at different private groups that we have right now. I mentioned the private universities. So a lot of people who tend to call themselves progressives hold up places like Harvard as being the pinnacle of society. And I'm very willing to say, however, the private, it's quasi-private police at Harvard University want to deal with the system. I think that's going to be great or better improvement compared to the uh, average government police. Exactly how they're going to deal with it, uh, that's an open question. We can look at examples of private parties doing bad things, and that's very unfortunate. We want to have that stopped in any way possible. But just because there's going to be private crime, it doesn't mean that creating a coercive monopoly is going to be a superior solution to that. So one of the very curious arguments that I've never really found compelling is this old argument, well, we need government because humans are not angels. So what that statement is basically saying is because humans are not angels, we're going to create a coercive government controlled by humans and then hope that they're going to act in a superior way. It's a, a bit of a circular argument. So I guess my answer is uh, there's a lot of bad things that could happen and we want to try and move in any way possible towards minimizing that. And I think a system of private rules and regulations would actually be superior as a way of protecting the unprotected and protecting individual rights. Well, and it's certainly a lot to think about. And you've put a tremendous amount of thought and research into your work on private governance. So I hope our listeners will find it interesting today. And before I let you go, why don't you just do a quick roundup of how everybody can find your current work and find your books and, and anything else you'd like to plug? Oh, thanks so much, Mark. So the book is Private Governance, available from Amazon or Oxford, any number of outlets. And it's available in hardcover. It's also available by Kindle. You can also check out a lot of my research online in the forms of articles if you want to search for my name, Edward Stringham. And there's a lot of online repositories like ssrn.com, which have a lot of free copies of my works as well. Ed Stringham, keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ed. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with Edward Stringham, who has certainly done a tremendous amount of research on the subject of private governance, of just how people can privately come together without a central overriding coercive force, what we generally accept today as the role of government, and how it can sort of solve a lot of the problems that we assume that this big coercive force must handle. And I honestly think this is one of the areas where we have a lot of difficulty communicating ideas because a lot of it just seems like wordplay to people. I mean, when we say private governance, governance is good, but say government is bad, naturally, a lot of people that we try to talk to about this stuff get confused because and so a lot of people, when they think of government, they're thinking of you know their local fire department. They're thinking of the library. They're thinking of a local organization that 
actually does provide a lot of things that they like. So when we just come out and say, no government, government, bad, bad, then people start to say, well, wait, what do you mean? I can't have these things that I like provided by the government right now. Why is that? And it really comes back to you know our perception of what government is and should be. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the example that I brought up continuously throughout this interview of 20 property owners gathering together and deciding to collectively do certain things like police, like courts, like fire departments, that falls perfectly in line with Edward Stringham's concept of private governance. It also falls in line with government, with what government is. However, things have really been altered in modern times. We don't really have private property-based city-states. Our states were not founded on the private property of all of its owners. And certainly our federal government was not founded based upon the private property of all the citizens in the land. So we've certainly gotten a far away from a private property society for sure. But at the end of the day... Whether the system that you live under is quote-unquote private or quote-unquote public, whether you call it government, whether you call it a club, what really matters is the beliefs of the people within that system. Because if you have a bunch of people who believe in very immoral things, like, say, child slavery, whatever system those people form and support is going to reflect those beliefs, whether it's a private system that allows it or whether it's a public system that allows it. And this is why, like I always say, The most important thing to focus on here is the philosophy, the philosophy behind individual rights. We have to focus on the reasons why certain acts should be considered crimes and why certain acts should be considered rights. Now, the vast majority of our actions are, in fact, rights. If we're not harming someone else, if we're not violating someone else's legitimate property rights, well, that's a right. You have a right to do that act. But if you do violate those property rights, if you do attack someone who has not attacked you, well, now you're committing a crime. And it's that distinction between rights and crimes that we really need to keep the focus on if we're going to have any system that's just, if we're going to have any system that's fair. That's the focus. Now, and I hope my discussion with Ed Stringham today gave you some ideas, got your mind working on how different systems of government might work in reality. But at the end of the day, we have to remain focused. We have to keep that laser sight right on the foundation, right on the core, right on the philosophy of individual liberty. Guys, if you're a fan of the show, and I got to imagine you're at least somewhat of a fan, if you're still listening to my voice at this point, I'd like to do a couple things right now. And first, I'd like to invite you over to our private group on Facebook. It is called the Lions of Liberty Forum. And if you just type that phrase into your little search bar on Facebook, it should pop right up. We'll also link to that in the show notes for the show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 91, where you can also find links to everything we discussed today. But we'd love to have you in the forum. That's where I ask for questions for future guests. I ask for suggestions. You can talk to myself, other contributors to our site, other contributors to our roundtables, past guests of the show. We're really getting a lot of activity in there. We want to encourage you to come on by. So just pop us a little request. I will get you right in there and you can join the conversation with us. Also, if you are a fan of this show, please, I ask you to help us out. And there's some ways you can help us out. Number one is just to tell your friends about it. Share this show on your social media. Share it on your Facebook. Share it on your Lions of Liberty. You can find our Facebook at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Our Twitter at Lions of Liberty. We'd love for you to go over there and use that to share our shows with everybody else out there with your own social media. Get this conversation going. And if you really want to help us out, one of the best ways you can do it is by going over to iTunes, clicking that subscribe button, and leaving us a five-star 
rating and a great review. Uh, that system is really a big part of iTunes algorithm of which shows get promoted, which shows are more likely to get in front of people's eyes. And that's the only way we're going to grow this conversation by getting these ideas in more of those earbuds out there. And, and you can help that by just taking five minutes out of your day, heading over to iTunes, whether or not that's how you listen to the show, leaving us a five-star rating and a great review. We really would appreciate it. Coming up next week, we're going to have another little roundtable discussion because this political stuff just never seems to end. So we're going to talk about the latest in debates, the latest in the political maneuvers of this election season and whatever else might come up this coming Monday. And of course, before that, we've got another edition of John Odermatt's Felony Friday, a weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. So much for you here at Lions of Liberty, and we sure are glad to have you guys along for the ride. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.